everyone, and welcome to Texas Public Radio. And we are proud to present Worth Repeating Quitters. Everyone make some noise. Yeah. <laughs> I am your host, Andrea Vocab Sanderson. It's so good to be here. It's so good to see other people in here. You know, I was the first person to perform here. And I'll tell you where we are in just a second. Uh, and it's so great to see the numbers growing every time I come to this studio. So Vince Lombardi once said, winners never quit and quitters never win. But what happens when we permanently leave a position, a way of life, or a circumstance that tries us to save ourselves from something far worse than losing or giving up? Sometimes stepping out on faith or even fear can be a gateway to freedom and success. It takes maturity to evaluate the circumstances that we are in and realize that we are going about it all wrong and it's not working out for us. And we may need to yield you know, to get different results so we can overcome and continue. With that said, tonight we are live inside of Texas Public Radio's headquarters inside of the Malu and Carlos Alvarez Theater. This evening we are streaming live to bring you seven amazing storytellers. Our first storyteller this evening is Davy Jackson. Davy is here to tell us his story about how he quit his normal life. Here's Davy Jackson. Hey, how do you take a relatively normal, well-behaved homeschool kid uh, and turn him into an absolute degenerate? In my experience, uh, you put him in a cult. <laughs> put him in a cult. I'm Davy Jackson, and this is the story of how I became a drug addict. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt. Uh, grew up in a very happy family, relatively normal childhood. Uh, we were we were an evangelical Christian family, um, and like I said, I was a, I was a pretty normal kid, uh, except I was homeschooled, so I was I was kind of weird, you know. Uh, and to make matters worse, on top of that weirdness, at about twelve years old, uh, my family joined a cult. Ah. Uh. Yeah, we joined a cult. I remember when I was about 12 years old going to a seminar at a mega church in Houston, Texas. And I remember looking around at the people at this mega church and thinking, wow, these people are all dressed the same. That's kind of strange. Uh, <laughs> it turned out that this seminar uh, was the cult's primary outreach tool. They focused on character building. They focused on God's biblical plan for families. Uh, and it worked really well because my parents joined almost immediately. Uh, now my, my early exposure to the cult, uh, was, was relatively normal as far as cults go. Uh, I really didn't know any different. Uh, I was homeschooled and this cult published homeschool curriculum that families could use. And they were biblically based lessons. Uh, you would go through the Bible and learn about math and reading and history, all biblically based stuff. Um, and so that was my first exposure to the cult. I didn't really know any different. I didn't know anything else. Uh, my family uh, was part of a home church with other members of the cult. And so this was completely normal to me. Uh, nothing at all was problematic about being in a cult uh, until I turned about 15 years old and hormones kicked in <laughs> and I wanted to date. I wanted to date, and that was strictly forbidden by the cult. That was, that, was, that was not allowed. That was a sin. Dating could lead to lust and temptation, and worst of all, sex before marriage. Uh, so instead of dating, the cult required a process called courtship. Courtship is essentially arranged marriage for weird kids. Uh, <laughs> your parents pick your partner. Uh, the families essentially date one another because you're not allowed to go on individual dates because once again, that could lead to temptation. So you went out on dates together. You weren't allowed to be alone together. You weren't allowed to even kiss before marriage, much less have sex. Uh, and I had a problem with this. I had a big problem with this at 15 years old. Um, now, by this time, my family had left the home church and we were going to a normal church with normal people. 
And this was kind of my first exposure to life outside of the cult. Um, and so it was interesting because while my hormones were raging and I'm meeting these new people outside of the cult, I also met my first girlfriend. Uh, my first girlfriend was the captain of her high school's cheerleading team, and I was absolutely smitten. Uh, but I had to keep it a secret because dating was a sin. Uh, my parents eventually found out that I had this girlfriend, and the way that they reacted, you would have thought I was running a full-blown brothel out of my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> I remember specifically my mom telling me at one point, you are on the road to hell right now by dating this girl. <laughs> but that was, that was brainwashing from the cult. That was brainwashing from the cult. And my parents were doing the best that they knew how. Um, my parents became so concerned about my behavior that they, they picked up our entire family and moved 2,000 miles from Houston, Texas to Massachusetts. We moved 2,000 miles away to get me away from these negative influences. But my bad behavior continued. I was still rebellious. Uh, and not knowing what to do, they decided to send me to a rehabilitation program. Now, this cult was a little bit different from other cults. Um, no one lived in a compound. You had the option to live in a compound, but you didn't have to. Uh, they had compounds, though, all over, all over the world, as a matter of fact, dozens of them. Uh, and one of these compounds was in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that's where I went at 15 years old to attend behavioral rehabilitation. Um, now, at this point, I'm a relatively normal kid. I'm actually a really good kid. I never drank. I never experimented with drugs. I was just a normal 15-year-old boy. And I find myself in this rehabilitation program with some other normal guys that were also members of the cult, but also... Uh, the city of Indianapolis was using this particular training program to try alternative rehabilitation methods for real criminals that belonged in like a juvenile delinquency center. <laughs> I'm talking about car thieves. I'm talking about violent offenders. Uh, so this was a complete culture shock for me. I had never spent any time away from my family at all. And here I am in Indianapolis, Indiana at this training center wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> um, now, at these training centers, there were volunteers, volunteer members of the cult that would work for free. Uh, hundreds of people, dozens of families that would work at these training centers putting on uh, seminars, conferences, and programs like the rehabilitation program uh, that I was in. Um, there were also girls at this training center, and I was heartbroken but not too heartbroken that I didn't notice there were other girls around. <laughs> I quickly got in trouble uh, for fraternizing with members of the opposite sex. Uh, and it just so happened that two of the girls that I fraternized with and was having inappropriate interactions with just happened to be the daughters of one of the directors of the training center. So that was a problem. That was, that was a big problem. This program was all about forced labor and community service. So they would send us out into the streets to pick up trash. They would send us to Bible studies. We would be forced to memorize scripture. And normally for infractions, you would just have to do more forced labor. But because my infraction, my interactions that were inappropriate with the opposite sex, because of the seriousness of this infraction, uh, I was actually sent to solitary confinement for a week at 15 years old. I was locked in a room that they called the prayer room. Very ominous. Very, very ominous. The prayer room was a bed, a bathroom, a nightstand, and of course a Bible. And I was in there for a full week. The idea of the prayer room is you would go to this prayer room to think about your sins, repent, and confess. Um, I ain't no snitch. And so I spent the full week in the prayer room. Now, at this point, I was about five, five or six weeks, I would say, into a three to four month program. They finally pulled me out of the, pro, out of the prayer room, I should say, after a full week to have a meeting 
with the leader of the cult, a one-on-one meeting with the supreme leader (laughs) of this cult. Now, the name of this cult is ATI, or the Advanced Training Institute, also known as IBLP, or the Institute in Basic Life Principles. The most famous family in this cult, y'all might have heard of them, is the Duggars from 19 Kids and Counting on TLC. (laughs) And Bill Gothard, the leader of the cult, is this family's hero. And this was the guy that I was going to meet with. We sat down for a meeting, and it was surprising when I first met him. I'd I'd never met the guy in person. I'd seen him on TV. I'd I'd seen him in the literature that the cult would send out. Uh, But meeting him in person was interesting. He was a very unassuming guy. He was kind of short, definitely balding. He definitely dyed his hair. Um, But he had a charisma to him. And he spent an hour explaining to me that I needed to repent for defrauding young women. Now, I don't think anyone had told him what was going on, uh, but I think there were enough suspicions that he had kind of figured it out. But once again, I ain't no snitch. I didn't say a word. So at the end of an hour, Bill Gothard looked at me and said, you don't belong here and we're going to send you home. And so I went home. And two years later, at 18, I quit the cult. And a few months later, the rest of my family left as well. Uh, And that's how I quit a cult, y'all. But (laughs) I traded cult life uh, for years of drug addiction after that. Now, I also eventually quit that, but but that's another story. Here's the irony of of what I went through uh, being in a cult. A few years later, there was a scandal that rocked the Advanced Training Institute, and Bill Gothard. Several young women came forward and claimed that he had groomed them, or to use his own words, defrauded them for years. He had to leave the cult in disgrace. You can Google the cult now. Uh, You won't find a whole lot about its current activities, just mostly about how Bill Gothard is a creep. Um... But he ended up having to leave in disgrace. They had to sell off most of their training centers around the world. Uh, And their activity, as far as I know today, is extremely limited. Uh, And I I don't know if it's true or not, but I really like to think that I had a a part to play in that. (laughs) Guys, I'm Davey Jackson. Thank you all so much. Our next storyteller is Mary Becket. Mary is here to tell us her story about why she quit operating heavy machinery. Let's all welcome Mary Becket. This is a story about how I lost my finger. Now, I don't know if I can really say I lost it because I know where it is. No, where it isn't, it's not on my hand here. If you can't see really closely, instead of a left index finger, I just have a little nub, a little sleek little nub. Um, but don't worry, this is a story with a silver lining. It turned out well. It's not going to just be about how, like, I can't handle the metric system. <laughs> I like nines. <laughs> Uh, If my story was titled in Latin, it would be called Nove Digites, right? If it was in Spanish, it would be Nueve Digitaramus. Okay, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I don't speak Spanish. Um, But my story starts in a small town in Texas where I grew up called Manor. When I was growing up in Manor, I still had all the fingers. (laughs) Um, But everybody in my town was poor, in fact, my family did not have an indoor bathroom in Manor uh, when I was growing up. And this was in the 70s, you guys. So my mom pushed me really hard in school because she liked to have something to brag about. <laughs> and I graduated high school a year early when I was 17 years old. And even though nobody in my family, not my parents, not my siblings, nobody had ever gone to college, I applied to a lot of colleges far away colleges because I wanted to leave Maynard. 
and I got accepted to a performing arts college in Utah. And the story of me missing my finger really starts when I go to Logan, Utah, which was a big city, you know, to me. <laughs> Compared to Maynard, um, Logan had all kinds of buildings. It had the university campus. It had dorms. There was a bathroom inside. Uh, I loved that part of it, but I was also really lost. You know, even though when I got there, I still had all my 10 fingers, I also had all the insecurities um, that would come with someone from such a small town who didn't know what to expect in college. So the way that I coped was by overeating. Now, I was a theater major. I was too self-conscious about my body to even try acting. So I decided I would be a technical theater major. That would be, I would work building sets and designing, running, running cameras and stuff like that. The actresses in the theater department helped me out with my weight problem because they had all my same insecurities. They told me about a diet pill doctor. And so I went and I got diet pills. Look, I can't even do the, <laughs> the finger. Anyway. Um, those diet pills, I'm pretty sure, I'm 100% sure those were amphetamines. <laughs> and so the doctor told you if you didn't lose weight, continue to lose weight, then you couldn't get any more pills. So it was finals week, the end of my freshman year in college, and I stayed up all night studying with the help of my diet pills. <laughs> I couldn't eat anything because I didn't want to gain weight. And then I went to my work-study job in the theater shop. Uh, where I was running the table saw that day. <laughs> so don't worry. It sounds unsafe, but I was wearing my safety glasses. <laughs> and my job that day was to rip lumber. I don't know if anyone's ever worked in carpentry, but when you rip lumber, you're sawing boards the long way. So I had a long 12-foot board. I'm going to resist the urge to say long story short. I was cutting it lengthwise, and what would happen would be the saw blade on such a long, skinny cut, it would bind, so it would just stop. And every time it did that, I would leave my hands in place to hold the board on the saw, and I would leave my fingers in place by the unmoving blade, and I would turn around and kick the plug uh, to make it start up again. <laughs> so inevitably, you know, boom, it happened. Uh, and I remember, after I cut my finger, I felt embarrassed that like I only had bandages around like one finger uh, in the ambulance. Now, this was in the 70s. It was, it was a long time ago. If this happened today, I'm sure they would be able to save my finger. But I'm also sure they would give me a drug test. <laughs> and I could be telling you this story from prison. <laughs> so nobody ever knew and nobody ever asked me. Uh, if I was hopped up on amphetamine diet pills. Uh, so I'm lucky in that respect. When I called my parents to tell them about my accident, they said to me, hey, you're 18 now. You're an adult. <laughs> so you're going to need to handle that. <laughs> so imagine what it was like for me to be 18 years old, thousands of miles from home, no more amphetamines, maimed and on my own. And uh, all I could do at 18 was try to be an adult. So I dropped out of college. I worked a lot of menial jobs, just waitressing, cleaning. I worked in a canning factory. And I did that for about five years until I got really tired of that life. And you know what's funny is like all my insecurities about my weight and stuff they really didn't matter to me anymore now that I had a real insecurity to worry about, like missing a digit. I never wore any jewelry for years. I never wore rings or bracelets. When I got tired of just drifting, I decided I was going to go back to college. And that's what I did. I, I went back to school. I didn't major in technical theater. Uh, I majored in Chinese. This is more practical, right? I really majored in Chinese because someone told me that they didn't think I was quite smart enough to learn Chinese. 
And so I spent quite a few years trying to prove to them that I was smart enough. And I ended up proving to myself that I was smart enough too. Um, the way that this story concludes is I went to China after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, still the first person in my family, including my parents, to ever get a degree. I went and I taught English in China. And some girlfriends and I went to Hong Kong and they made me get a manicure. I was 28 years old. It was 10 years since I had done anything to beautify my hands. They made me do it. And that manicure changed my life. It did because I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. I can get a manicure. So when I was very young, I quit a lot of things. I quit amphetamines. I quit being taken care of by my parents. And I quit having all the fingers. <laughs> Um, but what I was able to learn is that even though I'm not whole on the outside, I'm whole on the inside. And all it cost me was one little finger. So, <laughs> thank you guys so much. I'm Mary Bacay. So our next storyteller is Krissa Valadez. Krissa is here to share her story about quitting everything to find herself. Here, tonight, welcome to the stage, Krissa Valadez. This is a story about how I dropped out of art school and ultimately dropped out of life for a little bit. I'm an only child, which basically just means I was a mini adult, simultaneously my parents' best friend and their only chance at really raising a successful kid. Combine this with being a GT kid, which stands for gifted and talented in school programs, which also means I had a Lexapro prescription at age 10. My parents both came from low-income minority families, and they had parents who didn't really support their academic endeavors. My father got a bachelor's degree sort of despite his family and never was able to go to the out-of-state colleges he wanted to. And my mother just recently got her degree at age 47, um, having waited her whole life to go back to school. I admired their work ethic and made it my number one goal to go to college throughout my whole adolescent life. I was set up from the beginning, not really knowing if it was my dream, but knowing it was the dream I had to achieve. I took Latin in middle school because I knew it would help me on the SAT. I participated in UIL tournaments that I didn't really care for. Um, I was in orchestra just to have an extracurricular. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I didn't want to be just a nerd. I soon fell in with some kids that were cooler than me, and I wanted to be a lot like them, so I adopted a work hard, play hard mentality, which meant that I dabbled in drugs and alcohol from an age I was entirely too young for, around the age of 12. When I got to high school, I went to a unique magnet program um, on the campus of Lee High School here in San Antonio. It's called ISA. Um, soon at this high school, I went to a college fair in ninth grade and found Pratt Institute, the Ivy League of art schools. I didn't really know anything about art school at this time, but as a young creative writer, I knew this is a place I really wanted to be at. So I made this my new goal, go to Pratt, no matter what. I did everything I needed to do in high school as well, um, although my drug use set me back my sophomore year when I briefly got kicked out of school. Um, but I rallied and never took my sights off my goal. I got a 2100 on my SAT. I studied for years on my AP exams and used all my credit to go to college. I got into Pratt in a program with only 30 spots uh, for creative writers, and I had achieved my goal. I was going to be a writer in New York City. At my graduation party, I completely dissociated, um, as well as the summer before I was leaving for New York. I was having a lot of like night terrors or weird anxieties, but I thought, this is normal. You know, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to New York. I'm going to reinvent myself. This is what I'm supposed to do. 
When I got off the plane in New York, my mother wanted me to go out with her to get dinner, go to a Broadway show to celebrate my new life. But I was just really mourning my old one. Still, though, I persevered. I moved into a dorm off campus because there were no dorms available, but it was all right. I had a roommate I really liked. She was also an only child, and we related a lot to each other. I quickly made friends at school in my program, and I was even able to transfer my job from the Urban Outfitters at the mall in San Antonio to one in New York City. I was pretty much set up for success, but after my second semester there, really weird things started happening to me. At the time, I had experience with anxiety, but I didn't really know what agoraphobia was. Um, it's basically not being able to leave your house because you're captive by your own brain. Um, I lived off of microwave popcorn, even committing the cardinal sin of eating my roommate's food when she wasn't there. That's how I knew it was really bad. I smoked way too many cigarettes. I lived off of black coffee. I stopped sleeping, eating, showing up to classes, really showing up to anywhere. Everyone was telling me I was living the dream, but I wasn't really living at all. I soon got kicked out of school and had to write an academic appeal because I just didn't come to any of my classes. I appealed and got back in, but I knew I just couldn't make it there, and I knew I had to go home and get out. So I later withdrew about a month after appealing. They were very confused. Um, the registrar asked me one day why I was dropping out, and I said, I've just become really neurotic and depressed, and I don't want to live here anymore. He was shocked. He said, well, I'm neurotic and depressed, but we live in New York City. Don't you want to live here? but I didn't share his sentiment. When my grandmother and mother came to help me get my belongings, um, they kind of treated it more like a vacation, but I didn't really blame them because they weren't from New York and they did want to see the Statue of Liberty. Uh, but it was very painful for me and I was super numbed out, but I knew when I got home, everything would be better. When I got home though, I still couldn't leave my house. I couldn't drive anywhere. I couldn't hang out with friends or my boyfriends. I couldn't do anything except a very elaborate jigsaw puzzle. That was my only shred of sanity. I enrolled in community college, but it was kind of on and off. I had a couple odd jobs that didn't really stick and I had some internships just to have something to do, but nothing really worked. During this time, I had quit doing drugs at the age of 18, um, but when I turned 21, I remembered that alcohol existed and I could legally drink it. At first, I was just having a couple cocktails, you know, take the edge off, but soon I found myself buying $5 of wine and finishing them at night and crying about all the things I was going through. I soon recognized that this was a pattern from my past life, and I had to quit it. At the age of 21, like about three months after my 21st birthday, I decided to get sober. I worked with a therapist that I had been seeing since I was 16, only this was actually no bullshit this time. Um, we did EMDR and very intense inner child work. Uh, I felt like a raw wound until I was about 22 years old. When I was 23, I started living for myself. I got into my dad's alma mater and transferred from community college. Love community college, though. It's the best. Um, I started a curatorial project with my best friend that helped me have an outlet for my creative passions, as well as give me a success level in my career that I never thought possible. I got out of a toxic relationship and cut off people who no longer served me. And all around, I just started living life on my own terms. I moved out this year as well. And I will say I love my parents for everything they've given me, but I think I didn't really realize how to live my life until I was forced to do it on my own. Yeah, oh, what? That was sorry. <laughs> um, sorry. Why am I trying to think of my literal state of being? No, sorry. Um, I'm about to graduate college, but I don't know if school was ever really for me. I don't know if I'm ever gonna get a master's degree or a PhD. I don't know what I'm gonna do in the future. A lot of people say I seem sure of myself, but that's because I'm the only thing I'm really sure of, but that's a freedom I afforded for myself. And thank you.
Our next storyteller is Jeremy Jones. Jeremy is here to share his story about how quitting made him realize where he was needed most. Let's all welcome Jeremy Jones. So I was 25 years old. I was in the Army. I was stationed in Hawaii. 9-11 had happened the year prior, and during that year after, it became very clear that my unit in Hawaii was not going to go to Afghanistan. And while nobody wants to go to war, it's an odd and kind of frustrating feeling when you see all this going on and people you know are deploying and you feel like you're not doing anything. Around the same time, I was at a crossroads because I was about halfway through my commitment, five-year commitment to the Army, and I needed to make a decision about my future because it affected my next assignment. So I was doing a lot of soul searching, and I came across this quote from Henry David Thoreau, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, live the life that you've imagined. And I actually found that quote deeply unsettling because I realized that I had been living a life that other people had imagined for me. My father had said, go to West Point, study engineering, go infantry, go ranger school. I did all that stuff. And now I was left thinking, what's, what am I going to do? What's my dream? And I didn't know. So around that time, my unit gets sent to the swamps of Louisiana for a big training exercise. So we're there. The first week is just setting up, and there's this row of porta pots in the mud. And one porta pot was kind of my like my safe space. It was my thinking spot. And I would go and I'd sit there and think about this quote. And I actually took out my sharpie and I wrote on the wall in between pictures of anatomically incorrect genitals. I, I wrote the quote: "Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you imagine." And I'm thinking about this all the time. And then the exercise starts, and I find myself in a four-wheeler probably two weeks in. I hadn't, you know, slept more than a couple hours a night, you know, uh, hadn't bathed, just sleeping outside. And I'm going to pick up some ammunition from a, a supply point, and there's this captain there. And I've never really spoken to this guy, and he just says, hey, how's it going? And I just bear my soul to this guy. I just say, well, I'm trying to find the direction of my dreams basically. And he basically replies, isn't this the life you've imagined? And I look around at the crates of ammo in the mud and like, not really. So we have this kind of long, uh, oddly meaningful conversation. I say oddly for two, uh, you know, two guys in the infantry standing in the woods, uh, only just a few minutes, but just a really impactful conversation. And I leave, I go back to the exercise, we finish the exercise, I go back to Hawaii, and a couple weeks later, this captain calls me, he says, hey, I was thinking about you because of that conversation, and this position came up, I wanted to see if you were interested. Uh, he explained that there was a general, uh, he was a commander of a task force, a special operations task force in the Philippines that was tracking down a terrorist group that called the Abu Sayyaf group, they had uh, captured two Americans. I said, okay, sign me up. You know, I, sounds good. Uh, it was in, the position was to be the general's aide. So I go to this interview, the general's in a place called Zambawanga, the interview's over the phone, and he's asking me questions and it's going well. And then he says, so what's your plan? Are you planning on trying to go special forces? Are you going to stay in the infantry? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, what if you had to choose today? And I said, well, if I had to choose today, I'd get out of the army. That kind of ended the interview. <laughs> and I left thinking, wow, that could have been pretty cool, but whatever. But I get a phone call a couple weeks later. It says I got the position. And very quickly, I found myself in Zamboanga, um, Zamboanga City in the Philippines. And when I met the general, he, he's this, this, the way I describe him, he's like Santa Claus, if Santa Claus was in the military, you know, like Santa with a military haircut, super fit, but you know, the same kind of warm, just joyous laugh. He deeply cared about people. I mean, unlike Santa, I believed in him. That's, that's the thing. So you know, he, we had the SEAL teams and the, uh, 
special forces uh, teams out there training with the Filipinos, but he also believed very deeply in winning the hearts and minds of the people. And so he had brought engineers in. They were building roads. They were building clean water sources. He was trying to connect people with the local governments uh, so that uh, to try to fix the root of the problem. But the thing that I saw down there that impacted me the most is every night in our operations center, um, these team of doctors would come come in and, and they would explain what they were doing there. And they would go out into these uh, remote villages in the jungle and they would treat uh, these Filipinos with, uh, for base, basic conditions that here we take for granted, but people die from when they don't have access to care, like simple bacterial infections. And it really struck me after I spent some time there that the doctors there seemed to be having the most impact. So eventually the general pulls me aside and he explains to me that the reason I was hired is that when he was a junior officer, he was having a hard time finding his direction. And he wanted to give somebody the experience to help them find their path. And ultimately that's what happened. That experience there led me to um, get out of the army and apply to medical school and become a doctor. And so that's, that's what happened. Um, looking back, I would say to kind of summarize, you know, you don't have to know what your dream is to start going in that direction. Once you commit to taking charge of your life, you, you start, opportunities start to open up and you start to realize things are possible that seemed unimaginable before. Anyway, thank you so much. My name is Jeremy Jones. Thanks again. So our next storyteller is Taryn Tipton. Taryn is here to share her story about how she quit one job to become a minister, then quit that job to save her marriage. Here's Taryn Tipton. My husband and I were college sweethearts, and we got engaged at a tailgate when we were 21 after just seven months of dating. I graduated from college one weekend, and then I had a bachelorette party, and then I got married, and then I went on a honeymoon, and then I moved out of state, and then I started my first real job in six weeks. I was reeling, and I was madly in love, but my life had completely changed, and I had no idea what I had gotten into. Nobody graduates from college in Texas and says to themselves, you know what, I'm going to go to Shreveport, Louisiana. But, but that's what happened for me as I followed my husband to medical school there. It's not what I would have picked. I went with a bad attitude, but I was committed to being a good and supportive wife. I was surprised to find that being a good wife was a lot harder than I anticipated, but Shreveport was surprisingly easy to love. The church and the community that I found there was absolutely paradigm shifting for me. It was completely different from the conservative, traditional Southern Baptist church that I had grown up in. I mean, these people were fun and they were authentic. And I finally understood what some people mean when they say, like, this is my church family. I found that my questions and my doubts were welcome instead of swept under the rug, and I began to see faith communities as having a critical role to play in making the world a more just and inclusive place. When those four years in Shreveport were up, we found out that we would be moving to San Antonio for my husband's residency, and everything was falling into place exactly as we had hoped. But late at night, these questions would rear up and refuse to be put to rest. Like, how long would it take for San Antonio to feel like home? And how would I ever find friends like this and a church like this? But the questions didn't matter because we had to move to San Antonio for his residency. So a year into that move to San Antonio, we had all of our boxes unpacked and both of us were settled into new jobs. The wounds of leaving our community in Shreveport were still raw. I missed what we had left behind. And then it happened. I was invited to become the first female minister at the church that I loved. And how could I say no to that? It was my dream job. 
So in February of 2018, I quit my normal stable job in San Antonio and I accepted the position as a minister. And in that role, I got to become the type of person that I always needed to see growing up. A woman with work that mattered, a woman in a leadership role and something important to say about faith and hope and community. So for three months, I wore out the roads between Shreveport and San Antonio, going back and forth, trying to navigate this new role as a minister while still trying to be a present partner to my husband in San Antonio. But I found that I was living a double life. It was full of connection and purpose when I was in Shreveport. But when I was in San Antonio, I was just a wife in an increasingly unhappy marriage. So my apartment felt lonely, and the few moments that my husband and I had between his long shifts at the hospital were fraught with tension. I believed that I was building towards this rich life that we would share, but he didn't understand. He just thought I was being selfish, and I was putting this job over our relationship. And finally, he reached a breaking point. He couldn't do that back and forth anymore, and he gave me an ultimatum. Leave the job at the church, or our marriage will fall apart. And like the good wife I had always been, I quit the job. And that summer of 2018, my life was at a standstill. I was in a holding pattern, fighting for my marriage and waiting for my husband to decide if he would fight too. And eventually, he decided. He wanted a divorce, and I had to move out. Because how could I afford the apartment? I'd quit my job, after all. And so suddenly, I found myself jobless, churchless, spouseless and homeless. So I holed up in my sister's guest room and about a week and a half later, I emerged because after all of that, I needed a damn margarita. And so I went to happy hour and there he was, my husband, sitting at the bar with some bleach blonde with too much eyeliner and my hand started shaking and I ran out of the bar without paying for my drink. And I remembered Wait, that shirt that he's wearing, his favorite red shirt? I literally just ironed that shirt that he's wearing on his date. It's like, oh, so mad. And I realized in that moment <laughs> that I was fighting for this marriage that he had quit a long time ago. And it was time for me to quit too. And I also realized I needed to get the hell out of Texas. And that is how I ended up on a one-way flight to Madrid. I told my family... I don't know if I'll be gone for three weeks or three months. I don't have a plan, um, and I don't know what I'm doing, except all I know is if I'm just going to be sad and apply for jobs, I might as well do that somewhere. I'm not going to bump into my husband while he's out on dates. But of course, almost immediately upon landing in Madrid, I panicked, and I woke up the first night at 3 a.m. crying, right as all the night, as like all of the 19-year-olds who were sharing my room, they came back like drunk and laughing, and all I could think to myself is like, what am I doing in the top bunk of this cheap hostel, surrounded by drunk European teenagers? Like, I just want to go home, but the home I missed didn't exist for me anymore. And the husband I missed didn't exist for me anymore. So after a couple of days, though, I felt like I can take a breath. And I was sunburned, and my feet hurt from like walking all over the city on cobblestone streets, but my mind was clearer. I had so desperately needed something to shake me out of this grief and shame spiral that I had been living in and remind me that there was still life and beauty in the world. So one weekend, I took a bus to the coast, and without even stopping to check into my hostel, I went straight to the beach. And while I was there swimming in the Mediterranean, looking up at the sky, I thought to myself, my whole life, like, I've done all the right things. I've checked the boxes and followed the rules, and my life is proof that you can do that, and it may all fall apart anyway. But I realized, when it all falls apart, at least you get to decide how to put it back together. And I did put my life back together. Not only had I quit two good jobs, now I quit an understanding of marriage that was tainted by harmful ideas of submission. I quit my entire identity. I quit the life I thought I wanted. I was like built my, I built my identity around all of these expectations, and I was determined now to become a person of my own making. 
And as I remade myself, I found new purposeful work at a grassroots nonprofit that empowers women who've been marginalized and abused. I finally found my people in San Antonio, and I found a supportive partner who loves me so well. I don't think that everything happens for a reason, but ultimately, none of those painful experiences were wasted because all of that quitting led me to the truest and freest version of myself. Thank you. I'm Taryn Tipton. Our next storyteller is Charles Wooden. Charles is here to tell his unique story about how he went from quitting every job to becoming a CEO. Here's Charles Wooden. So I'm here today to tell you guys a story about how I leveraged quitting to go from being a Korean linguist in the United States Air Force to the CEO of an incubator and accelerator here in San Antonio. Uh, I'm also here to teach you a few lessons on how you can do this yourself. And it's timely because we're at the great resignation, as everybody knows right now. So you can learn these lessons and you can do it yourself. And so the first thing I want to talk about are three principles that you need to know in order to quit appropriately. And the first principle that everybody needs to know, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is it's not personal, it's business. Haven't you guys heard that before? Of course. And the way that I learned this lesson was when I was young. My dad uh, ended up working for a company that did automotive parts. And right after NAFTA was passed, he was asked to move down to McAllen, Texas, and the whole family did, in order for him to set up a factory in Reynosa, Mexico. Set up that factory, got it up and running. And after two years of doing that, once the factory was good to go, they let him go. They didn't do anything to try to help him find another job. He ended up having to find it himself, and we ended up moving back to Michigan. And what that taught me is that a business itself is always going to make a decision that it needs to, no matter how it affects somebody personally. And so I stored that lesson away. The next lesson principle that I want to tell you about is a principle I learned more recently. And this is from my current boss. Uh, and he had said that everybody deserves to be a valued member of an inspiring, uh, I'm sorry, of a, of a, um, Everybody deserves to be a valued member of a winning team on an inspiring mission. And that rang really true for me. And it becomes a filter for you to use as you go through the different companies that you work at is to make sure that all three of those boxes are checked. So make sure that you use that filter going forward. And the last lesson I also learned pretty recently from a good friend of mine, and he had shared with me that everybody has their last day at an organization. It just depends on, who ter on whose terms you're leaving it as. And so this is your power. This is your strength. You can deserve or you can decide when you, when you want to leave a job and move on to the next thing. And so here, let me tell you my quick story. I grew up in a small town, Michigan, a small town sandwiched between Flint and Detroit, Michigan. I'm sure you guys know of those cities. While I was growing up, those were cities that were on a downward spiral. Uh, I wanted to get out of the town when I was young. Uh, so right after I graduated high school, I decided to join the military. I wanted to become a spy. My sister had talked me into joining the Air Force and, and trying to become a linguist. What did that mean? I have no idea. But I signed up anyways. Uh, and I joined, took a test, and they ended up telling me I was going to be a Korean linguist. Go to training in beautiful Monterey, California for two years. After that, I end up going and spending the majority of my time in Omaha, Nebraska. Sexy, right? Um, everything I wanted to be. And then for the next four years while I was serving in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, being a Korean linguist, mind you, guess where I spent most of my time? The Middle East, of course. This is in the middle of Iraqi freedom, and it's also the time of enduring freedom. So I spent the majority of my time in the Middle East doing nothing to do with what I did. And one of the things I realized in my time spending majoritively in the, in the Middle East was that this wasn't an inspiring mission for me. And this wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like a valued member of the team either. And so I decided I was going to quit. But before I did, they sent me away to become an instructor for two years. So the last two years in the military, I spent being an instructor, which was one of the most like amazing jobs I could tell you about. It was so rewarding to see these young kids leaving the training that I went through in Monterey 
to be taught by me in how to become an effective military person. And that was so rewarding. But I still had committed I was going to leave. And while I was in that last two years, one thing I did realize was something about me that I really liked, which was that I love to fix people's issues. So if I had a student in front of me that had an issue, it became my duty to fix that issue for them so that they could become better going forward. And I kept that as well, along with those three filters I mentioned. So I quit the military after eight years in, and I ended up deciding I was going to go to school. If I like to fix issues, what should I become? I should become an engineer. So I moved down here to San Antonio, started going to school at UTSA. And one of the things I realized quite quickly at the age of nearly 30 is that I'm 10 years older than everybody else in this room. I don't feel like I'm a part of a team at all. I don't really know what my mission is other than to get a degree, which didn't seem all that inspiring, to be honest with you. And so I quickly realized this is really not the place for me. But it was a really hard decision to quit because I just left this military job in order to do this. I left a career and it was a really difficult thing to do. And so I decided I needed something else to distract me. And so I got a part-time job at Apple. I ended up working in a retail store. So those of you who came in and said, I can't unlock my phone, I don't know what's going on. That was the guy who helped you. Uh, and I, I joined this you know, direction where I was going to become a genius. Everybody, I mean, who wouldn't love to be called a genius, right? And so I decided at that point, this is, the, this is the jumping off point. I'm quitting school. I'm going all in an Apple. I felt for sure Apple was an, on an inspiring mission. I felt very valued. They had, a, they had a path for me. I knew what direction I was heading in. And that team was winning, no doubt. Apple's always doing great. And if you see, I'm wearing everything Apple. Um, but anyways, so I jumped ship joined Apple, fell in love. I ended up working at Apple for a total of three years. And while I was there, I was on that pathway to genius. And then I realized that there was another pathway with, with Apple. And that was working with businesses. Because Apple not only supplied and helped people fix their products, but they also supplied that to businesses. And one of the things that I realized was while I was working with businesses was that their one problem affected several people. And so for a person who got a high off of fixing others' issues, fixing hundreds of people's issues with one issue was amazing. So sign me up. Well, how do I do more of this? And so it's what I did. And so I was a consultant for Apple doing business-to-business -business sales for two years, and I loved every minute of it. I never thought I would leave Apple. I knew what my next step was until one fateful day, an old boss of mine at Apple had walked in the door and he had said, hey, you have to come check out this place in downtown San Antonio called Geekdom. And I was like, sure, whatever, just out of pure gratitude for the guy. I'm, I came down here, and I went and I saw the building, and I heard the story of what Geekdom was doing. And one of the things that unlocked with me is something I'd completely forgotten about, was growing up where I grew up. I grew up sandwiched between Flint and Detroit, two cities on a downward spiral. And here I was, standing in a building, uh, hearing about this mission that a guy, who's now my boss, Graham Weston, had to change the direction of downtown San Antonio. How more inspiring can you be for a kid who grew up around two cities that were, that were going down to be a part of a city going up and be a part, of, an, an integral part of that? So I decided I was going to quit the one job I never thought I would leave, which was Apple, and I joined the Geekdom team. And I was just a, a lowly salesperson. But after two years, I had the ability to step up and become the CEO, and it's been one of the most rewarding jobs that I've ever had, and I can't imagine a better job than what I have right now. So... That's my quick journey. It took less than 10 years to accomplish all of that. And the one thing that I want to leave you with today as I conclude are, again, to revisit those three filters. Number one, it's not personal. It's business. We all know it. Figure out what your own story is to remember it. Also, remember that everybody deserves to be a valued member of a winning team on an inspiring mission. And lastly, don't forget that you control the power. It's, it's, everybody has their last day at an organization, and you decide when that's going to happen. So the last thing I'll say is just remember to join or to go for your passions. Don't look back. Jump in and keep moving forward. Thank you. Our last storyteller for tonight is Holly Hart Rayborn. Holly is here to tell us a story about how quitting is a family tradition passed down by her dad. Here is our last storyteller, Holly Hart Rayborn. Y'all make some noise. <laughs> quitting is a family tradition. 
My dad quits jobs as if quitting jobs was his job, and he has a quota he needs to reach. Growing up, I thought that was normal. Dads just have a lot of jobs. So when my dad picked me up for middle school theater practice one afternoon and told me that he had quit his most recent position, I wasn't surprised. When I realized he had done so in just his underwear, and that's why he was rushing me into his truck and speeding out of the school parking lot, that's when I started to have some more questions. Uh, Until about a month before this, my dad had been really happy in his job as a field mechanic at an oil field equipment rental company, which is a lot of nouns to describe one blue collar job. Uh, He had been there for about a year at this point, which was a record for our household. And he was really happy until the unthinkable happened. He got promoted. (laughs) My dad hated being a manager. He hated that he was working longer hours but wasn't getting overtime pay. He hated that he had to deal more directly with the shitty customers. But more than anything, he hated that he couldn't be friends with the other mechanics anymore. In fact, upper management had strictly forbidden it. They said if my dad continued to be buddy-buddy with the other mechanics, then no one would respect him. Uh, And my dad really didn't like this. He was not happy about it. But the final straw happened when his boss told him he would need to fire one of the other mechanics, one of his friends, just to make an example out of him, just to get more respect from the other team members. Uh, My dad was told it's either him or you. And so my dad quit. There on the spot, he announced to all the mechanics in the shop and some customers in the lobby, I quit. I'm not giving notice and I'm never coming back here. And he started to walk out the door. Uh, That's when his boss called out, well, you're going to have to bring back your uniform or it's coming out of your last paycheck. But see, my dad had already just said he's never coming back. So he stripped. Right there in front of God and everybody. He took off his uniform, left it in a pile by the front door of the lobby, and uh, in just his undershirt, some boxers, and his steel-toed work boots came directly to pick me up from school. Uh, I know that that might seem kind of uh, childish or irresponsible to some people for a father of two to quit so suddenly to burn those bridges with no other job lined up. But my dad was a really and is a really skilled mechanic and he knew he'd be able to find a job easily. He knew his worth and he knew that that job did not define him. And that's what he was showing my brother and me through example. I got my first job the summer after I turned 16. I was working as a beverage cart operator at a country club, which is a misleadingly luxurious way to say that I was selling overpriced Michelob Ultra to some of the worst men in the city while they played golf. Uh, It was a terrible job uh, for terrible pay. I had to smile politely while men older than my grandfather told me how well I filled out my uniform and then tipped me a quarter. Um, to buy myself something pretty, you know? Um, and I was so miserable and I was so tired and drained from that job that in my free time, I was too exhausted to even enjoy the rest of my summer. But I felt trapped because in my mind, all the good summer jobs had already been taken. But my dad assured me that there would always be another job and no job was worth being miserable for. So I quit, but I kept my clothes on or else the creepy customers would have won. Quitting that summer jobs was pretty low stakes, but I remembered my dad's words a few years later when I was making a much bigger life decision. Uh, I started grad school for public health in 2019. I was getting my master's in epidemiology, which might sound familiar because epidemiology is the study of the spread of diseases. Uh, I had always loved learning, always loved school, had a great time getting my undergraduate degree from Wellesley College, so going to graduate school seemed like the natural next step, Uh, except I hated it and I was bad at it. (laughs) Turns out learning about diseases became a lot less fun in 2020. Uh, But I had moved halfway across the country and taken out so many loans, Uh, I felt like I had just made this life-defining mistake. I was talking to my dad on the phone after getting yet another D on an assignment uh, when he said something radical. He said, if you're not happy, why don't you just quit? And I was taken aback. You can quit school? (laughs) Didn't sound right to me. But I did my research and it turns out you can. You can quit right in the middle of the semester. 
And so that's what I did. I quit. I dropped out of grad school in my underwear because I did so from the comfort of my apartment on the registrar's website. Uh, I am a grad school dropout, and I guess you could say I'm in the family business because I've never had a job longer than a year. But I just started a new position last week, and fingers crossed, this one's going to stick. But even if it doesn't, I'm not worried because my job does not define me. I am happy and healthy, and I can provide for myself. I have time for my friends and my family and my hobbies. Uh, My dad taught me that my job doesn't define me, that I'm so much more than my job. And so my advice, my dad's advice, if you're not happy in a job, if a job is making you miserable, quit. Clothing optional, but encouraged. All right, thanks. Thanks.